Thank you for reading, Graham and Sue. What did you make of all that? As I sat there listening, I find myself realising afresh that the Bible's not a book of nice little platitudes. It's not a book of cute little kids' stories. Uh, it is a book for adults. It is a book for grown-ups. It's a book about freedom that comes at a high cost. We're going to dig into that today. Learn something about that freedom and about that cost. Some things in life are very important to remember. If you drive to a shopping centre, say Macquarie Centre, it's very important to remember where you've parked your car. If you forget, it's a real hassle. If you're married, it is very important to remember your wedding anniversary. If you forget, conflict ensues. If you set a PIN number for unlocking your phone, it's important to remember what you've set it to. I once changed my PIN number late at night. Next morning, it was gone. I ended up missing a flight because I was locked out of my phone. Some things are very important to remember. And so we find ways to remind ourselves, don't we? In shopping centre car parks, some people like my wife like to take a photo of the sign of the parking zone where they've left the car, which is all good, but then you're going through the family photo archives 10 years later, and you see, oh, look, I parked in C4 Green that day. What a good memory. Another classic is if you're at a friend's house and there's, there's a dish in the fridge you have to remember to take home with you, and so you think, oh, what I'll do, I'll put my car keys in the fridge with the dish so that I can't leave without it, which is all well and good, until you forget that's what you've done and you turn your friend's house upside down looking for the keys. That is a great gift to me. I'm a big user of it and it's automatic reminder notifications. They work really well as long as I put the correct date and time in in the first place. Doesn't always happen. Sorry again, Terry. When something is important, we use means to help us remember. Because remembering is important. I've given pretty light-hearted examples so far. There's nothing funny about someone who crosses the road and forgets to check if any cars are coming. Someone who goes to the pub and forgets their wedding promises. Someone who goes to work and forgets about their toddler who is still in the car. Remembering can be a very serious matter indeed. Now, this term at All Saints, we've been looking at the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. In the chapter that Graham read for us today, we heard about an event that is crucial to remember. It's so important to remember that God himself provides a means for remembering it. Because remembering is important. Remembering can be a matter of life and death. In Exodus so far, we've heard how God's ancient people, the Israelites, they were living in the nation of Egypt, they became a very numerous people group. They multiplied so greatly that the Egyptian ruler started to see them as a threat. And so they became enslaved, forced to work on giant government building projects. But as a people, they kept growing. And so Pharaoh went further. He put in place a policy 
that whenever a male baby was born amongst the Israelites, that baby must be put to death. It was a dark time. God heard his people's cries and he commissioned a leader, Moses, to go to Pharaoh and say, the Lord says, let my people go. Each time the hard-hearted Pharaoh refused, God had sent a plague on Egypt. First the river turned to blood, then frogs infested everything, then gnats, then flies, then the livestock started dropping dead, then all the Egyptians got a nasty disease with giant pimples, then hail destroyed crops and livelihoods, then it was locusts and then darkness. Devastating demonstrations of the Lord's power and his determination to rescue his people. But actually, God knew all along that none of these would convince Pharaoh. What we read about today in Exodus 12 is the tenth plague. But this plague is actually quite different to the others. In the previous plagues, Moses or his brother Aaron would perform some symbolic action to kick it off. Uh, Moses would point his staff at the river and the river would turn to blood or something like that. But there's none of that this time. The Lord brings about this plague on his own. In fact, the Lord seems to bring about this plague in person. In chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, about midnight... I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn son will die. Another difference to the previous plagues is that this time the Israelites had to prepare themselves in a particular way. In the previous plagues, the Lord had made a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians. The swarms of flies didn't enter the neighbourhood where the Israelites were. The livestock of the Israelites didn't die the terrible hailstorm bypassed their area. In the previous plagues, the Israelites were spared automatically. But not this time. This time the Israelites need to do a particular thing to be safe. And in our long readings today, we heard the details of that particular thing. What they had to do was select a lamb from their flock. It had to be unblemished, One year old, they had to set it apart days in advance. They had to care for it, become familiar with it as a living animal. And then on the nominated day, they had to slaughter it at twilight. They had to roast it whole over the fire with the head and the legs and everything. Not one bone was to be broken. And then it had to be eaten in one go. No saving leftovers for later. Anything they couldn't eat had to be burnt in the fire. All of this made for a very unusual meal. Normally back then, meat would be cooked in an oven or a pan. Normally meat would be saved up and eaten over several days because you can't afford to slaughter a lamb every day. This was no ordinary meal. The lamb was for a very special purpose. And we see this special purpose in verse 7. It says they had to take some of the blood 
and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And down in verse 13, the Lord explains, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That's why this whole event is referred to as the Passover. Those are the instructions. And amazingly, that's what the Israelites did. Then at midnight, the plague came. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. Verse 30 says, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt because there was not a house without someone dead. Finally, Pharaoh realises that his rebellion is futile and he lets God's people go. It's confronting, isn't it? It's meant to be. We shouldn't just nod our heads and read on to the next page. It's a shocking scene. It's a picture of what persistent rebellion against the living God leads to. When God comes down and rebellious humanity encounters his holiness and his majesty, the result is death. Verse 30 says, there was not a house without someone dead. And let me say, that included the Israelite houses. The Israelites were not a sinless people. They weren't qualified to survive an encounter with the God of glory. Even amongst the Israelites, there was someone dead in every house. But in the Israelite houses, it wasn't the firstborn son but the sacrificial lamb, the substitute. This was an event to remember. An event where God revealed some really important truths about salvation. The Lord showed that salvation comes by substitution. The Israelites weren't spared because they were sinless. They weren't spared because they were a superior race to the Egyptians. They were spared because a substitute had already died in their place. That's the first thing. But the second thing that God shows his people here is the need to express their reliance on that substitute. Here's the thing. The Lord knew perfectly well where his people lived. In the previous plagues, he'd been able to distinguish perfectly easily between the Israelite houses and the Egyptian houses. The sign of the blood on the door was not for his benefit. It was for their benefit. The reason he told them to take a hyssop branch and paint the blood on the sides and the top of their door frames was to express their reliance on the substitute. He tells them to stay inside their blood-painted houses that night and not to go outside to show that they understood the only safe place to be 
is where the substitute has already died. As God says, this will be a sign for you. They had to express their trust in this substitute. If some of the Israelites had said, oh, look, that sounds like a lot of hassle. I can't really be bothered. Let's not worry about it. Just have a sandwich for dinner tonight. I'm sure we'll be fine. Then the plague would have struck their houses. If there were Egyptians who'd said, oh, the God of Israel is obviously to be feared. Please, can we come and shelter in your blood-painted house tonight? They would have been spared. The key distinction is, have you placed yourself under the protection of the substitute? Now, this concept of substitution flows all the way through the story of the Bible. We should acknowledge that not every sacrifice in the Bible involves substitution. Some sacrifices in the temple were just giving a gift to God to worship him and say thanks. But in a lot of places, we do see this substitution principle at work. And it's especially true when we reach the New Testament and we learn about the ultimate salvation event, the ultimate substitution. The connection comes through really strongly in John's Gospel. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist points to Jesus and says prophetically, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does Jesus end up taking away our sin? By being our Passover lamb. By dying as our substitute. In our second reading today, we read John chapter 19, which recounts the death of Jesus. And John tells this story in a way that highlights its Passover connections. What time of year did Jesus die? Passover, possibly on the very day when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the Jerusalem temple. John points out that unusually for crucifixion, none of Jesus' bones were broken. And he draws the connection to the rules about the Passover lamb from Exodus 12, where it says, not one of its bones shall be broken. And for good measure, John mentions that the stick on which they gave Jesus his final drink, it was from a hyssop plant, the same branch that the Israelites had used to paint their door frames. This connection that John illustrates in his telling of the narrative is made explicitly by the Apostle Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And this is how you and I can survive an encounter with the true and living God. The Bible says a day is coming when God will come down to judge the living and the dead. God in all his shining glory as the creator of everything. God in all his moral perfection as the righteous judge. He will show up. And hold everyone to account. How can we, as the tiny little creatures we are, as the morally dubious people that we all are, 
How can we survive that encounter? Only through the substitute who has already suffered death in our place. That's the only way we can survive that encounter and enjoy the life and the freedom that lies beyond it. But like the ancient Israelites, the death of this substitute has to be received by faith. They had to go out and paint their door frames and take shelter in the house that was marked by the substitute's blood. And we likewise need to place ourselves under the protection of Jesus. We need to mark ourselves out as those who belong to him. And that's what publicly and symbolically happened as Lura was baptised this morning. And so can I ask you today, metaphorically speaking, do you have Jesus' blood on your doorposts? Are you someone who will say publicly, I belong to Jesus, I'm with him? You can imagine back in ancient Egypt, Egyptians walking past saying, what are you doing to your doorposts? It's, it's certainly a bold colour scheme, but it seems kind of crazy. And the Israelites would have endured that ridicule for the sake of being safe. And we likewise will have to endure rolled eyes at the very least. But publicly belonging to Jesus is the only way to survive God's judgment and to enjoy the life and freedom that follows. And so if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, can I urge you, ask the questions you need to ask. Work it through for yourself. Make your decision. Because in the end, it is a matter of life and death. For the Old Testament people of God, that Passover event was the salvation event to remember. For us, as the New Testament people of God, the cross of Christ is the salvation event to remember. It's the ultimate moment of salvation by substitution. But you might have noticed that as we read through Exodus 12, the actual plague on the firstborn, it actually only took a few verses to narrate. Most of the chapter is concerned with eating a meal. The Passover lamb is at the centre of this meal, but there are side dishes also. Verse 8 mentions them. Bitter herbs and flat bread made without yeast. The bitter herbs probably pointed back to the bitter slavery that they'd been enduring. The bread made without yeast pointed forward to the hasty departure from Egypt they were about to experience. They wouldn't have time to wait for it to rise. And the point of transition between those two things was the lamb who died as their substitute. But the different ingredients are not the reason it takes so long to describe the meal. It's because it's described in a funny way. They're in a very specific situation, right? You don't get rescued out of Egypt every day. But the instructions about this meal are very generalised. God could have just given Moses instructions on the fly. He could have said, 
set aside a lamb today, and then he could have come back and said, slaughter the lamb tonight. But if you look at Exodus 12, verse 3, instead we have dates. It says, do this on the 10th of the month, do that on the 14th of the month. And that's because this Passover meal and the festival of unleavened bread that goes with it, these were not just for that original generation of Israelites. They were to become an annual event. Verse 14, the Lord tells Moses, for the generations to come, you shall celebrate it to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. In verse 24, Moses says to the people, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. In later Jewish practice, this became a formal part of the Passover meal. The youngest child of the family would pose the question, what does this ceremony mean to you? And the father of the family would answer, well, we were slaves back in Egypt, but the Lord sent plagues and so on. Because these later generations needed to remember this event. They needed to know that their freedom stems from that original Passover night. They are beneficiaries of it, however many generations later. And I think it's really significant that the ritual meal eaten by later generations is not something that was made up after the event. No, they eat the same meal that the original generation ate that last night in Egypt. As the later generations eat and remember, it's like they were there themselves, participating in that original meal. And that's appropriate because every Israelite in the following generations shared in the benefits of what God did that night in Egypt. The recurring Passover meal is about remembering and participating. And the same pattern occurs with the saving death of Jesus. Before it even happened, God set up a means for remembering it. The night before he died, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples in what we now call the Last Supper. But that night, Jesus made some outrageous changes to the Passover traditions that had been honoured for centuries. In the Last Supper, no attention is drawn to the lamb, but during the meal, Jesus picked up the bread that they ate, he broke it, handed it out saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And later in the meal, he took one of the cups of wine which had become part of the Passover ritual and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus does a radical remix of the Passover meal. He tells people to eat it, not to remember the death of a Passover lamb back in Egypt, but to remember his death in Jerusalem. And that's what Christians have done ever since. We did it last Sunday, eating and drinking what we now call the Lord's Supper. 
It's a meal that God has instituted as a means for us to remember the source of our salvation, however many generations later. But when I say remembering, I don't just mean keeping certain historical facts in our brains. 1 Corinthians 10 says that when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. We are sharing in his death together. We are remembering and participating, just like they did with the Passover. That's why it's sometimes called Holy Communion, like common union with Christ in his death. What we do physically in the Lord's Supper is eat some bread and drink some wine or juice. What we're doing spiritually is feeding on Christ in our hearts, appropriating his substitutionary death for ourselves. We're expressing with our bodies that his death is what gives us life. We're enacting our reliance on him as our substitute. It's a precious thing. God knows that human beings who he made are not just brains on sticks. We're not just driven by ideas and thoughts. We're deeply influenced by physical experiences and habits. And so he gives these people these recurring physical things, like the Passover meal, like the Lord's Supper, to help us remember and help us to make that personal connection with his great saving acts. And so as we wrap up today, let's remember Jesus, our Passover lamb. Let's treasure the meal that God has given us, not just to remember the facts, but to participate and be nourished spiritually. Let's metaphorically paint Jesus' blood on our doors, openly and publicly declaring that we rely on him as our place of safety, as the one who secures our freedom, as the one whose death gives us life. Amen.